You're listening to a podcast by the Center for Action and Contemplation. To learn more, visit cac.org. Greetings. Uh, I'm Jim Finley. And I'm Kirsten Oates. Welcome to Turning to the Mystics. Welcome, everyone. We're in Season 5 of Turning to the Mystics, and we're turning to the anonymous author of The Cloud of Unknowing. And I'm here with Jim, and I've got some questions for you, Jim, about your talk last time. I wanted to start with something you said uh, during the talk last time, which was you said that God's always meeting you where you are. I find that quite comforting, but I just wondered if you'd unpack that a little bit in relation to what you're teaching about the cloud. First of all, in the, the spiritual worldview of, um, of the Christian faith, in concert really with the spiritual worldview of all the world religions, but for our way in the Christian tradition, Judeo-Christian tradition, is that um, God's with us first in the ongoing uh, self-donating act of God in creation, like let there be light, let there be stones and trees and so on. So what we have then, it's a self-donating act where the presence of God is presencing itself in and as the presence of ourselves and everything. And it's, and it's nothingness without God. So in, in, the, in the ontology or the very being of things, we, we see that the world is God's body, and that it's bodying forth the love that's uttering it into being. So there's that. Next, there then raises the question as persons, where we're created as persons, that we're endowed with the capacity, not just with reason, science, and all that, and culture, really, but we're also endowed with the capacity to awaken to that. That is, we were called with the capacity to be quickened by the divinity of ourselves in all things, which is religious experience. And then in the quickening, in the sense of the divinity or the wonder of each moment of life, we're then called to freely surrender to it, to this love, because love is, all, is never imposed, it's always offered. And the level at which or the ways in which we're aware of the divinity of our life and the ways in which we respond to it, that God's always present in that way, that God's always waiting mm -hmm. for us where we are. So even at the most rudimentary level of the first stirrings of the holiness of life, God's wholly there, wholly giving herself, giving himself to us in and as the sincerity of that. And then the author of the Cod and all these mystics, the Gospels, are showing us how that can go deeper and deeper, 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 deeper. So we're always trying to find out where we are, be present to that, because that's mm -hmm. where God is with us, uh, and see the mysterious path we've traveled so far to get here, and then keep leaning into it to see what God has in mind, because it's, it's eternal and endless into this arc and it being divinized, really, for all of eternity. That's so beautiful. I, it made me wonder about people who have found this podcast, and I wonder how God's meeting them in the way they found the podcast and as they listen to it. And, and that's what I think, too, when we first discovered the mystics, when I first read Thomas Merton, is you serendipitously come upon it. See? But then you can tell they're talking about what your heart has tasted, see, this, I can't explain this, but I can tell what's being spoken of is what my own awakening heart is being awakened to. And that makes it a real find. You know, I find your community and enter it. And yeah, I think so too. Yeah. Yes. I, I do remember when I first found your teaching, Jim, I just didn't know life could have this kind of depth I've been longing for it to have, the kind of love and forgiveness and acceptance that I've been longing for it to have. The book we're turning to, the mystic, we're turning to the, the cloud of unknowing. You talked about how this, this book is for a particular kind of people that, that have this longing for God, a, a, a stirring and a longing for God in a, in a deeper way than they have right now. Is that 
Am I saying that correctly? Yes, in, in this sense, and this is what I was really focusing on, on turning to chapter 8. Say we start first with chapter 8, and this will get us back to the foreword in the cloud of unknowing. So in, in chapter 8, he's, he's offered this way to pray, grounding yourself in this love, seeking God for God's sake and not for any of his gifts. You ground your heart's desire in this one word, and thoughts rise and fall within you. But the image I have, all these thoughts of God, revealed thoughts, true thoughts of God, they're like love letters from the Beloved. But now you've been quickened to desire union with the Beloved beyond all the thoughts of the Beloved. And this means um, disidentifying or letting go of one's tendency to let all your thoughts of God determine the ways you understand God. You have this understanding born of this uh, love, this unexplainably transforming you into itself. So then he says in chapter 8, because this is spiritual direction, it begins by chapter 8 with this directee and by implication all of us. Say, well, if you say that we're to put aside all these thoughts of God, why do I find them so helpful? Yeah, See? that's a good question. I I, that's a great question. I open the <laughs> Gospels. I from my Lexio, and Jesus says, "Fear not." I'm consoled by that. I'm touched by that. Or, you know, we saw this with Guigo too in the Meditatio, the reflection. So wh- wh- why why is that? And he says what you just said. That's a good question. He says. <laughs> <laughs> and um, he said, let me try, but it requires some explanation. So chapter 8, I think, shows us how this whole path calls upon us to be a reflective person. Like to sit very quietly, to kind of quietly uh, take unto ourself a kind of broader, more enriched understanding of these matters. And this is where he makes this distinction between the active life and the contemplative and the higher, and the lower, and each, and where thinking pertains to each one. And so in the very first one, for example, he's in the lower stages of the active life, it's your active life. It's the way you treat other people every day in your life, your attitudes towards them, how you act towards them, and you're trying to act in ways every day as Christ calls you to act. How can I be more loving, more engaged, have more empathy, more sensitivity, be more supportive. As well, you should. You should do that. But in the higher phase of the of the act of life, you, you realize there's a need to kind of pause and sit with the richness of that. See, like uh, rather than throwing myself constantly into this activity, see, how can I ground myself in the depth dimension that's guiding my activity? And that's the higher dimension of the contemplative, uh, the begin of the active life. You say, and then he goes on to say, however, even in this stage about thinking, where you're still thinking, you're reflecting on all of this, and you're like, no, the thinking too. We need to see not so much thought itself. And he says, first of all, know that all thought is good because God creates thought. God creates the mind to think. And so in this sense, all thought is the gift of God. It's a gift of God to think, the mind to think. He said, the question is, what do we do with it? So even in the lowest level of the active life, if our thoughts uh, inspire us to be uh, more loving, more kind, more, we see the goodness of thought. But thought can also, we can be um, uh, judgmental. We can be proud. We can be... uh, you know, kind of grounded in our position on something. Instead of, he says, so we're always, even at the lowest level, we're discerning out to always um, discern the quality of our thought in the in the light of love. See, and uh, so that's kind of where he starts. I like hearing that relating what can come across as a method, but relating it back to everyday life because. This is really about how we ground ourselves in God in everyday life when we're not looking for a method but a way of being. Yes, exactly. In other words, let's say in the practice we sit in a certain way, this way. 
What we're doing at the end of the, each session of quiet prayer is we ask God for the grace not to break the thread of those attitudinal sensitivities as we go through the day. So little by little by little, the way we habitually go through the day is more and more non-distinct from the way we pray. And that's what we're really looking for, is spiritual character transformation. See, so it permeates every moment of our life. That's, that's, that's right, exactly. Just a reminder, I think it would be helpful, Jim, to just give a little reminder of uh, the method. You've, you've started to do that, but uh, we're sitting in silence and we're there for an encounter with God, right? We're, we're, we're committing to saying yes to uh, our desire for God, not, not knowing how to what to do with it really, but just we might have this desire for God. We sit grounded uh, in the desire and a yes to the desire. Is that the starting point? Yes. Let's start there because that's where he starts. That's where she, the author starts. Yeah. And then we can see how starting in this way, uh, we're, we're all invited to try it. You know, and this is what's with the movement of centering prayer. It's a method that we open. We're all invited to try this. Try, give it a, give tr- it a give try, give it a try, yeah. and see. So, what the author is saying in the in the cloud is that he has more in mind first a very specific thing that he's talking to this directee who's coming to him for direction and by implication, all of us. And the director, the directee, isn't saying. How do I apply the truths of Jesus to my attitudes towards my spouse and towards my children? How do I apply it towards how I see the suffering of the world? How, all those are very important questions. How can I reflect on this? He begins to pick up in the person, not just that they've had these moments of a blind stirring of love in their inmost being of the Spirit stirring them to love, that is its innermost. It's that hidden place deeper than feeling, deeper than thought. But when it stirs, its reverberations echo out into reflexive consciousness, like something wondrous is happening. And then he also is saying, in these stages of the Christian life, the active life, um, the, 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 the common way of living the Christian life, the special way, devotional sincerity, the singular way. The singular way is where these stirrings of oneness, I think, happen to everybody from time to time. We're all graced like that. Mm-hmm. And I think what they tend to do is they tend to hallow our daily life or quicken it or they illumine our prayer or activity. But he's speaking to the person for whom those fleeting turnings, those fleeting quickenings. He says, you, you live now at the deep solitary core of your being. That is, you've come to a place where in some unexplainable way, it has become an imperative of your heart to habitually stabilize in that divinized state. And here's a way to do that. Here's a way to do that. And then he gives his method. Now the method then is not really a method as anyone can just try it. The method concretizes a way to stabilize in a stance that offers the least resistance to being taken by God into the depths of God beyond thought. See? And so it's similar in all these mystics. The Teresa of Avila starts out the first three mansions of the interior castle. We might say are the act of life, psychological, spiritual maturity. But in the fourth mansion, she speaks of something starting to happen to you, namely your heart's being enlarged to divine proportions. She says, now let me share with you what I've learned about how to surrender to that. So her method is really a way of obediential fidelity to this deepening event. Same with John of the Cross. He says we have to follow Christ in all things. But in order to follow Christ, in order to imitate him, we have to study his life, like open the scriptures, sit with it. But then what you do is you start to discover the loss of the felt sense of God's presence drawing us into a passage through a dark night, see, this deprivation. And I'm here to help you to surrender and understand what's happening to you. Likewise with Guigo, Lexio meditation and prayer, the prayer reaches a threshold of desire that becomes an unbearable desire that you're powerless to consummate. And so the whole steps of the ladder, for the person who's reached that point, 
is to stay there at that place so it can have its way with you, so that it drops down and touches everything. So it's in that same way the author of The Cloud is suggesting is not as a method, but concretizing a stance that offers the least resistance to being habitually stabilized Mm. in that mysterious quickening of your heart, in this infinite love beyond all thoughts of God, beyond all emotions of God. So, So in that sense... It's it's a kind of the 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 active aspect of cooperating with the grace. That's helpful, Jim, to hear you explain that. It's it's so um, countercultural, you know. Like we we want to grab a method and say, you know, if I do this, I'll get to unitive consciousness. Like start start tomorrow. Exactly. <laughs> I'm excited, but um, this is much more about finding something that helps extend something that's already happening, helps concretize it. I like the way you said that. And so there are some people, I've talked to a lot of people this way on retreats, they're not going to try it because they're not inclined to try it. If some people are inclined to try it, then try it. But the way you experience it will reveal the level at which you're experiencing it. So, for example, the person will say, I practice centering prayer, I find it so helpful. And then they'll say, well, why do you find it helpful? You say, well, I, it really does help me to become more centered, more grounded, more present, more humble, more open, as well it should. See? But those are the gifts of God. So you're using centering prayer to deepen where you are in the special way of deepening the gift to God. And the cloud of author and they're saying is, yes, of course, then do it. Do whatever helps, do it. What doesn't help, don't do it. But he's listening for something else. And he's listening for the person who says, yes, all that's true. It's true. But right now, what's more important than all of that is I feel within myself a burning desire that I can't feel. It's a desire that I do not understand. And I feel in some way, not God's gifts, but the very presence of God as God as accessing me. And I passively received it into myself. And I want to know how do I surrender to that. And so in chapter 8, he's saying it isn't either or. Like you're in this active stage and you, you hit the mystical threshold, you throw the switch and you're a mystic. It isn't, it's, a, it's a continuum. It isn't an either or. But it's a continuum of discernment of like where we are in the way that we might find this way to pray helpful to us. So then in the method, uh, we're grounding ourselves in a word and we're, we're looking for a word that does concretize, like in our hearts, it's kind of concretizing that openness, that desire. Um, that's how we can see the word, not just as a, uh, a word of distraction or a word of, but it, it, holds, it holds our own kind of hope and longing and desire. And then uh, there's this idea of the cloud of forgetting and the cloud of unknowing. So we're letting go of two different kinds of thoughts. Is that right, Jim, how to think of those, those clouds? Let's say that um, we, we find ourselves being drawn into this mysterious realm where it isn't just that there's been this fleeting flashes of the stirring, but a deep longing to abide there or to let it have its way with us. So he's saying what to do, what to do here then, is um, you have to stabilize in a daily rendezvous to stay uh, vulnerable and open to it long enough to let it have its way with you. So what you do is you take a word, and he said a simple one's better than a long one, but choose ones that's meaningful to you. So Jesus or mercy or yes or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then you use that word to ground yourself in the desire beyond all thoughts of God. You ground yourself in a word to ground yourself in finding your way beyond what any word can say, see? including this word. See? Now, in that stance, then, what happens is that when you're sitting there, there's still these thoughts of God come up, it's understandable that they would. 
through the liturgy or the scriptures, they would. And so you don't reject any of them. But you notice then that even the thought of God's infinity is a finite thought of God's infinity. That even the thought of God's eternity is a fleeting thought of God's eternity. And therefore what you do is you, in an equal-minded way, you realize that thoughts about God, for all their gifts to us, are impoverished when compared to the infinite mystery of very God beyond all thoughts of God. So the cloud of uh, unknowing, then, is an attitudinal stance of refraining from the inclinations to think about any of the thoughts that arise. And the way you do that is you keep turning to the word, like Jesus, 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 whatever, God, 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 to stabilize in this mysterious inner place of sustained receptivity to this love beyond all thoughts of God. And the thoughts of forgetting, the cloud of forgetting, is knowing that all these thoughts of God came to you through your memory. You remember you, you heard it in, when you read it in Scripture, in a homily or whatever. And also, it also applies to all your thoughts about yourself. It applies to all your thoughts about the earth, all your thoughts about people, the whole realm of, th of, of thought. See? Because ultimately speaking, you're unthinkable. See, that, that no idea of you is you. See? Because... Uh, what, who you ultimately are is who God eternally knows you to be in giving the very gift of God to you is the depth of your very self, the very divinity of yourself, this identity in God, in your nothingness without God. And therefore, it's really moving beyond the frontiers of ideological living. It's moving beyond. You don't reject all these thoughts. Notice this person who wrote this book was a scholar. I mean, what I mean is he... He had a very astute intellect. You know, he was a very clear thinker. And, but he's, he's inviting us to take this stance of a surrendered realization of this love that utterly transcends and utterly permeates all thought, all memory. And so this is the way. For those who are called to it. And you're called to it because Having tasted the oneness, there's a discontent with anything less than the oneness. A oneness with the mystery you cannot feel, cannot grasp. You can't attain it, but it's attaining you and your inability to attain it. And you're called to, to surrender in this love. Yeah. Turning to the mystics will continue in a moment. So this direct D in, in uh, the chapter you focused on was really concerned about letting go of thoughts where he or she experienced God's presence in the, in the thought as a gift, like you're saying. And it's almost like a fear of letting go of those thoughts because is there a God beyond or am I, am I rejecting God? Yeah, exactly. Am I yeah. Is that part of what feels like a death? You, because you talk about this practice can feel like a death. Is there a fear of there's something clinging to those thoughts that's anxious about letting them go? Does is does that part go through a kind of death? Let's say this in chapter eight, where he kind of fans this out, this broad-based way. Mm -hmm. he, he kind of starts at the lower level of the act of life in which we're actively engaged in our thoughts that guide our daily activity. As well, you should. The example I used in one of the talks, I think, is that if you're flying in a commercial flight and the pilot, you're 35,000 feet, uh, c comes over the speaker system and announces that he's a mystic and feels a vision coming on, you'd hope he'd fly the plane. See? In other <laughs> words, the holiness is in the concreteness of what love is asking out of us. We need to think think clearly. Likewise, in the more interior phases of reflection, we need to think clearly. Meditatio is the mind clearly processing what's received see, in, in, this, uh, in the being accessed and touched by God 
to let it reflect upon it, take it to heart, get it deep into the word. He says, so you should do that. You should do that. But what he's saying is this, though. There comes a point then where a person says that, is this all there is? There's, in a way, I'm consoled by it, because if I just keep reading more books and studying more things, and you will might be right, I mean, keep reading. You know, I mean, keep, you know, keep turning the pages of scriptures where well, you should. But he asks, is there more? That's the way the cloud puts it. Mm. Is there more? And what's more is God, is the infinity of God. Not God in his gifts and in the thoughts of God, but very God, as he said, naked, as God is in himself. And that it's, it's infinite. Not only that is, not only is there more, but it's infinitely more than more. See, good, better, best. It's infinitely better than the best. See. See, so we're not called to the best, see, which is com comparative, but we're called to what's infinitely better than the best, which is the infinity of God being given to us as our deepest self, we're called to realize his destiny. So that's what he's saying. He's saying that, there's more. now it's very scary because there's a comfort in our reflective thoughts and uh, it can be disquieting. Mm -hmm. when our present assumptions about ourselves and everything are no longer adequate to understand what's happening to us. And that's why it requires a kind of a trust. Thomas Merton once said, one of the great gifts of the contemplative life is freedom from the need to understand. And uh, because anything we're capable of understanding in our finite mind illumined by faith is finite. But there's a deeper way to understand what it means to understand which is being called, and we begin to sense it by the inadequacy of what we're capable of understanding. See? Because of this love that stirs in our heart. It's a, it's a very subtle matter for spiritual direction, really. And I think especially in monasteries, everything's intended to cultivate this or protect this. Out here in the midst of the world, you know, um, the world doesn't invite this at all. Therefore, how am I, in the midst of my daily life, in everything that's going on, how am I to believe that such a thing pertains to me? And how can I be faithful to it? So when I left the monastery, I started giving these silent contemplative retreats around the country a few times in Europe. Now, these are people in the world, like college students, married people, mothers and fathers, divorced people, widows, so on, uh, people in their professions. But when they heard the retreat was in silence, and the meals were in silence, and there'd be silent sittings and the mystics, they came. Because it, 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 it finds whom it finds, it gives itself to whom it gives itself. And you can feel something tugging at you. So when you open up the cloud or we listen to these mystics, it's like a homecoming. Like I'm, yeah. I found my place, you know what I mean? I, I, uh, there's something about it that rings so true to who I believe I'm called to be. In this chapter, there's the focus on um, the thoughts about God, but I also wanted to ask about, you know, in the cloud of forgetting, when I, I remember when I started uh, this practice, there's a lot of thoughts that come up uh, that aren't just about myself or about the earth or, or they are about myself or the earth or others, but they're critical, they're judgmental, they're kind of, um, or, or I start having, you know, thinking about what's for dinner, or I, I'm, and so I can see I'm frustrated the way my mind wanders uh, around. But I wonder those kind of thoughts. How do we handle seeing seeing this stream of thought, seeing things that we might not appreciate about ourselves, or we wish was different, or yeah, it might be disconcerting to, to witness. You know, in the in the cloud of unknowing, there's a a chapter on um, how, how to handle distractions, and um, it's chapter um, thirty two. And he says this. He said, "When these thoughts come at you like this, he's giving some stress, and he, they won't let go of you. You know, they're pers they're persistent." He said, what, you, what to do, he says, to look over their shoulder as if you're looking for something else. He says, which of course you are. 
So the thought arises, and you go, oh, very interesting. And that's not <laughs> that's not really what I'm looking for here. And precisely because you're a thought that you're not what I'm looking for, you look over what's beyond my thought. And so they kind of just fade away because we don't energize them by getting reactive to them, either by clinging to them or rejecting them. We're equal-minded with respect to all thought. If they're good thought, like what's for dinner, you're meant to think about what's for dinner when it's time for dinner. <laughs> and if you're practicing prayer, it might help you to be more present to preparing dinner. But in the time of prayer, you might say, I appreciate that, but that's not why, that's not what I'm about right now, like this anchoring my heart in what it was to present. Likewise, um, when I realize that I'm jealous of someone or angry about someone, like that, it, it is also another thought that brings up an attitude. So we just notice and we pass beyond it. But then later what we do when we reflect upon it, we say, where did that come from? So the way I put it is just beneath the anger is the pain. Just beneath the pain is the powerlessness. And so we're to become more contemplatively present to our anger. See, what's underneath it? Where does it come from? What's feeding it? And um, the God-given emotion that restores the boundary that was violated. See? And um, likewise, what is jealousy? Jealousy is the fear that we're replaceable. Where jealousy is we're so taken by how gifted somebody is. It blinds us to how mysteriously gifted we are in being who we are. And so sometimes outside of prayer, these thoughts that come up that we're not to think of in prayer... It's a time of prayer. It's very similar to psychotherapy in a way. It's to kind of illumine and teasing open and laying bare what feeds and nurtures these thoughts so that we become more aware of them, more accepting of them, more understanding them, them and not get caught up in thoughts which, which hold us back and lead us astray. That's so helpful because I think a lot of people get confused that the goal is to have no thought. And what I'm hearing you say is to be this witness to our thought and that every thought counts in a way, you know, that we might we might want to uh, unpack the thoughts later, but there's a self-knowledge that's arising and so we can learn to be better witnesses to ourself internally, externally in our own lives. Is that is that a part of what happens? Surely there are certain moments, say we're on this path, there are certain moments, no thought. Just There's just no thought, just God in all directions, unexplained. There are those moments. More often, however, this way, this way of love in God beyond all thought is realized in the midst of thought. An example I used in one of the talks is a, man, a couple like deeply in love with each other, sitting in a secluded, uh, darkened restaurant over a candlelit table holding hands. And uh, they're not in a trance. They see the waiters go by. They kind of, they hear the ambiance. Oh, but they're fixed upon one another, see. And so I think it's in the midst of thought we transcend our thoughts. See? And, and in a way, in a way, this is the voice of the poet. When you think about it, poetry is a language. I also think it's every word of scripture contemplatively understood. It's all, notice the Bible is all words, if you put it that way. It's a lot of, <laughs> it's a lot of words, thousands and thousands of words. And we can approach it as words, proof text flipping back and forth, and we do this. But there's another way of looking at it, the logos. See? Like what is this word, this living word, that, that silences me? and speaks to me unexplainably in being infinitely in love with me, drawing me to itself like this, which is the essence of everything Jesus says. See. So then when I get up from my time sitting this way, I might approach everything that arises with that kind of grounded confidence and, and care. Exactly, because I think what it does and say for the author of the cloud, it grounded him in his commitment to teach this. Mm -hmm. You can tell he's very committed to it. So uh, it circles me back around is what is the incarnate infinity that's present in the classroom of students that I teach every day? What is the divinity that's present in my terminal diagnosis? 
as I go day by day by day. How is it present when I water the house plants, you know, or I uh, I, I sit quietly at the end of a day, or I'm engaged in, you know, going to work in the morning, in via, like on the way, all my brothers and sisters in Christ heading somewhere. Where where do we think we're all going? And what's the holiness of this passage? And so it habituates these kind of sensitivities, I think. Mm-hmm. to the, the concreteness of the divinity of everything. It becomes more and more habitual as a sensibility or sensitivity that we have. And he affirms that in the guidance he gives to the directee around being able to discern thoughts more clearly, like back in the world, right. to, to, to follow the path of love, that this practice would lead to better discernment. Uh, That's right. Yeah. And this is why I ended it by saying that about the prayer and the guidance in the prayer, like this is your way, so, like this, and we looked at all, we looked at that. Then at the very end of the book, chapter 74 and 75, he says, uh, this might not be for you. Mm-hmm. Sorry to take up your time. I'm just trying to help. <laughs> you know? uh, but it's nice to know it's not for you. Then don't hesitate at all, because God's always waiting for you where you are. That's what holiness is. It's not, it's not trying to reach some states of consciousness. It's trying to surrender to the will of God and how God is present to us. But then he's going to say, then how are we to discern that it's for us? And that's where he gives these signs of saying that the first sign, that through the practice of this prayer, you're completely committed more than ever to do the will of God, which is to live by love. Also, when it goes away, when the ability to sit like this goes away, there's just nothing but thought, there's no there, is that God sometimes takes it away to let you know you're powerless to do it. Let you be presumptuous and think you can do this like a method. See? You can't do this. If you could do this, it would be just more of you. See? But you're being this inf- sweet infusion of God beyond what you can do. And uh, so it's humbling. And it's what you learn about yourself when you can't do it. It's its own contemplative mystery. Because God's the infinity of your inability to do it. Deeply accepted. See, And then he says, and then when it does return, and you, you can do it. He says, then when, at times when you can't do it, you realize something's missing. You can't name it or explain it. And it's just it's, it's missing. And then when it does return, you know it by the joy you feel in its return. As a matter of fact, the joy is even heightened by its painful absence when it returns and gives itself to you again. So it gives like discernments of our heart to know it is for us. And so he says, read it, sit with it, take it to heart as it's given to you to do so. I think all these mystics are saying that. But they circle back around and say, but they're always paying particular attention to the one who's being particularly called to this more contemplative, wordless way, because it's very hard to find somebody to talk to about this. That's the thing. And that's why we treasure these mystics, in case you are in the midst of all the unresolved matters of your heart, you realize in the residences of this that maybe this pertains to you. So almost in a way where you're... you're describing those three discernment pieces which called to do do God's will in all things but there's this the way we move towards this is this deep longing so we're already in the state of kind of missing something is that exactly but what you're saying is even as we continue on this path of longing and desire that might keep happening again and again and again so it may be the reason I start the prayer which there's something missing and I've tasted it and it was joyful and I long for it. Are you saying this might happen again and again, the loss and the gain? Yes, exactly. And here's another way of saying it, too. Is that there is this long, say it goes away, you got a taste of it, and then all of a sudden it vanishes. There's just nothing but the thoughts of God. And then there's this longing for its return. And even when you're in the stream of it, there's a longing to radicalize it ever more and more and more. Mm-hmm. But then you realize that your longing is an echo of God's infinite longing for you. Mm. See, that's the key. 
and in some way, God's infinity of your longing. Our next mystic, we're going to be looking at a Julianne of Norwich. And she picks up on this of love crucified, where Jesus says, I thirst. See? I thirst. And so our th more than the deer runs for longing, running streams, O Lord, does my soul long for you in the Psalms. See? And know that our thirst for God is an echo of God's thirsty for us. And therefore, even there's a contemplative mystical understanding of unconsummated longing. It's unexplainably being consummated and your powerlessness to consummate it. <laughs> On this earth, when we cross through the veil of death, what we're obscurely, the perfect way goes on for eternity, but it can begin here in this way. But it's perfect in some obscure, subtle, but deep way. But when we pass through the veil of death, it'll be fully in the light of glory, see, which is God. That brings me back to that sense you spoke about. This can feel like a death, uh, or it's a foreshadowing of death that can have an experience of dying. Can you just describe that a little bit? What's happening? What might that feel like? Let me give some examples for psychologically and then spiritually about addiction when applied to terms of addiction. Is that we can be deeply invested in a habit of our heart is perpetuating our suffering. But we can't let go of it because we're, we're convinced that it's true. St. John of the Cross has this lovely image. He said, imagine your chest is made out of glass and imagine there's a light from your heart shining out. So you see everything in the light shining out from your own heart. So if your heart is filled with fear, everything or everyone you see is something to be afraid of. If anger is in your heart, everything you see is something to be angry about. Uh, so, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's something to attain, possessiveness of heart, one more thing to attain. And then what happens to a person is they come to a point where they realize something's not working here for me. I'm not happy. And as they slowly look at it, a lot of, like, say, psychotherapy or 12-step recovery, you start dismantling your assumptions and the intensity of your conviction. You see their bankruptcy of their nothingness. And in accepting their nothingness, the light that was always there shines through. It's a conversion process because the, the you that has been addicted to that doesn't quietly step aside to set you free. Mm -hmm. So there's, an, there's this wrestling process and surrendering to God and the struggle to let go of what hinders us from finding what alone fulfills our heart, that, like that. And there's that. What the mystics are saying is we're addicted to the finite. It's having the final say in who we are. It's real, even though it's holy and good. Our finite understandings, our finite thoughts, our finite consolations, our finite of everything. And we hold fast to it that forms what we think is the horizon of what's possible. And then when we get a glimpse of something more, it can be frightening to us because it implies an act of trust because of the loss of control. We're afraid to lose the control that we think that we have over the life that we think that we're living, mm. even though it's claustrophobic. And so it implies then a passage of trust, of surrendering yourself over to a boundaryless presence that's permeating your body, your mind, your thoughts. And this is why we need to be careful with this, we need to pace ourselves, whether it be in therapy or recovery or anything, not to re-traumatize ourselves. But I think we're gonna force our way through because that's disrespecting the part of us that's still afraid, disrespecting the part of us that's still confused. We're always circling back around to be there for and with the part of us that doesn't get it yet, see? Mm. To be there with compassion and tenderness and to carry ourselves along. So I think the path has that quality to it. This discussion about the active and the uh, contemplative life or way reminds me of, uh, you know, we're both on a podcast for the Centre for Action and Contemplation, Richard Raw's organisation that we both work for, and how um, Richard says the most important word with action and contemplation is the end. And I'm wondering just with our dialogue so far, like how, how might we think about that? What's the end in the way we live? 
Yes, the author of the cloud says in chapter 8, there is this active life and the contemplative life. And the thing to know is each one is incomplete without the other. No matter how active you are, it always has this contemplative depth dimension to it. And no matter how contemplative you are, the activity is always there because you have to eat dinner. You know what I mean? <laughs> Someone's, you're already late for your appointment, see? Mm -hmm. And so there, there's the and, like the inclusiveness of both. I think what the mystics are saying, it's also what Richard is saying also, is that in the way the and it dissolves. So the very activity is itself like Merton contemplation and action. And I think this is the connection between the mystical awakening and the corporal works of mercy. This is a relationship with the mystical awakening and social justice. It, it, isn't as if, it isn't as if I could, I could be so mystical, only I didn't have to live my life. You know what I mean? I'm all, I'm like, I look at my daytime where I get disheartened. It isn't that. It isn't, it isn't. So what we're to do is we're trying to find this balance of the and. Each is incomplete without the other. But if we just keep going, we discover that each is present in the other. And I think that's Christ consciousness. So when Christ walked this earth, there was no and. For it wasn't God and all of you. <laughs> it was all of you that I eternally knew in me and God before the origins of the universe, concretely present. And so all these healing stories in the Gospels uh, and the healing event was really they were quickened by what we're talking about. They had to go live their life. And um, Lazarus was raised from the dead, but he had to go die later. You know, they're all dead. Every single <laughs> one of them, they've been dead for years and we'll be dead soon ourselves. So how, how can we concretize or consecrate the ordinariness of activity with this depth dimension? And how can this depth dimension beyond all activity into God discover God in us, present in all these activities? And we had to find our own harmony based on the givens of our life. You have your life, I have mine. And, uh, yeah. Before we end, I'm just going to say, when I asked you the question about, uh, you know, my, th <laughs> my thoughts come up, they're judgmental, they're critical, and, uh, and you paused for a bit, I thought you were going to say, oh, dear. <laughs> <laughs> That's not normal. <laughs> I share with this weird image. It comes to my... I study this contemplative prayer group at St. Monica's Church. There'd be like 60 to 100 people there. And I'd give a talk like this on the mystics. And then we would turn out all the lights like candles around the room. It was at night. And we would all sit together in the dark, doing sitting. Then we do walking meditation. Then we would sit and $3 donation for the poor in a dialogue. It was very nice. So I had this image that I'm sitting there in meditation like this. And we're all sitting there so poised, sitting straight in the dark. And what if you're sitting there like that in a room full of meditators and you don't know it, but there's a big TV screen over your head and everyone in the room can see the thoughts that you're having while you sit there. <laughs> and you hear giggling and laughing and you glance up and you see that they see it too. <laughs> it's so embarrassing. <laughs> but, if, but, if, but if everyone had a screen over their head. See? Yeah. One of the monks at the monastery, Father Matthew Kelty, was such a holy guy, he's my confidence for a while. He said... Um, when we chant in choir, in the monastic choir, we didn't talk to each other, we used sign language. And we're chanting the Psalms back and forth in choir. Um, he says, you wouldn't know this because we don't talk to each other. He said, but I'm having a very hard time living in this monastery. And when I stand in choir, I look across the aisle about why life is so hard for me here. It's all of you. <laughs> <laughs> and he says, you're probably having a hard time too. <laughs> I, I, could, I just get a sense it's probably true, and you're looking across at why it's me. The issue is, it's not working here. At the end of each song, glory be to the Father and to the Son. So Merton talks about communal dread. You know, this, this is impossible. See, So there's this thing, Desolation Row. Who's, who's this rock singer who, uh, who's, who sang Desolation Row? What's his? Oh, I'm not going to be able to remember. Yeah, he's so big. Yeah. So I like him so much. Merton, I like him so much. He had a song about desolation row. He said, we're living our life on desolation. The, the, the ending of a relationship, and you know why, you're the reason why it ended. You live on desolation row. So there's something unworkable here, which look at the cross. Mm -hmm. 
Jesus says, follow me. Sounds great to see where he's taking us. This crucifixion of our dreaded and cherished illusions that anything less than love has the authority to name who we are. But we're attached to those illusions, see? And uh, we're all caught up in this together, which is the divinity of the communal fragility of ourselves, infinitely loved. And I think this whole path has that feeling to it. You're like, oh my, <laughs> I just told Jim that I had judgmental thoughts. I'm going, seriously? <laughs> I don't believe, how did you, oh my gosh, so upsetting. <laughs> now I have a judgmental thought about you for having judgmental thoughts. <laughs> oh, and that's so the dilemma. <laughs> that's our dilemma. Uh, well, thank you, Jim, for guiding us and uh, helping us in, in this beautiful and broken dilemma that we, that we live in. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And uh, now we'll turn to our end, which is Corey. And say thank you, Corey, for helping us in the background. And thank you, Jim, for today. Thank you. Thank you, and Corey, both. It's a, yeah, thank you. It's a gift. Thank you for listening to this episode of Turning to the Mystics, a podcast created by the Center for Action and Contemplation. We're planning to do episodes that answer your questions. So if you have a question, please email us at podcasts at cac.org or send us a voicemail at cac.org forward slash voicemails. All of this information can be found in the show notes. We'll see you again soon. Do you feel called to walk a more contemplative path? The Center for Action and Contemplation is an educational nonprofit supporting the journey of inner transformation. Our programs and resources will help grow your consciousness, deepen your prayer practice, and strengthen your compassionate engagement with the world. Learn more about our resources, such as publications, podcasts, email series, and events at www.cac.org.